sermon text this morning comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 4. As you know, we've been going through the Gospel of John as a church. In the next four weeks, we're going to take a pause on that. And the reason is, I think it's always a good time to revisit our mission as a church. To keep us centered on why we exist in the first place, why we're here. Not just a collection of people who have the same interests who show up on Sunday mornings at 10 or 10.05, but as a collection of people who are called together in the purposes of God for His kingdom. And so what I want to do this month, and I want to do this every year this month, as we head into the fall, is to pause and to look at our mission as a church, why we exist, to reorient, to center ourselves on that, that we might be the people who are mobilized by the grace of God, who walk in the grace of God, or as we put it, proclaiming and live out the reality of the gospel, which is good news for the lost, for the found, for our city, for the world. And so what we're going to do this week is look at how the gospel is good news for the lost, the gospel promise of a new record. That said, we're at 1 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. This is God's Word, good, beautiful, and true. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your Word. That in it we get a glimpse of who you are and what you're about, and so we get an invitation to walk in that reality. And a picture of who we are to be in you and what we are to be about. So as we look at these verses and we think about the courtrooms that we inhabit in this world and the verdicts we live under, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts the good news of Jesus Christ. That the verdict passed on him would be ours. That we would claim your promises by faith transform us into a people who walk in step with that promise all the way through. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I believe in this world we live most of our lives in a busted courtroom, in a broken courtroom. And as Exhibit A, I would like to present to you daytime television. I don't mean the price is right. I do love the price is right. Um, but I present to you daytime television. Think about it. Think about something like the show Mara. If you've ever watched Mara, don't raise your hand. But it's fine. It's been on for 31 years. But think about Mara. It was just renewed for its 31st season. There's 3,600 episodes of this television show. 3,600. And if you've ever seen it, what happens is there's some scandalous thing usually related to the unknown paternity of a child. And Mari will bring out guests and introduce us to them and tell us their story. And usually what he introduces us to is the most embarrassing thing in their entire lives. And if you've ever seen it, the, the crowd jeers. The crowd passes judgment as it's happening. But he trots the guests out, introduces us through the most embarrassing, the worst thing in their lives, and leaves us, the audience, to decide if they are worthy of sympathy or disdain. 
Guys, Mari is a court reader. Or think about Dr. Phil. You've ever seen Dr. Phil? Again, you don't have to raise your hand. Under the premise of helping hurting people, Dr. Phil, psychologist, he brings out. Now, I don't know how many of you have experience with therapy, but when I have gone to therapy, it is a closed room. <laughs> it is locked up. There's not an audience. There's not a camera that I know about. I mean, you can talk to my therapist <laughs> to make sure. But it's closed off. It's private. There's a sanctity to the room. There's a trust there. But what does Dr. Phil do? He brings people onto a stage and again, trots out the worst thing about them, the most embarrassing thing about their lives in front of a live studio audience and a TV audience of 3 million people every day and pretends to offer therapy in between the gas of the audience. Dr. Phil is a massive courtroom. Or, the very best example, the literal courtroom of Judge Judy. Judge Judy Shiner. Judge Judy just finished this past July. I don't know if you know that. But they just finished production on the show, Judge Judy, in July. And it had been on air for 25 years. 6,280 episodes. And as an aside, at one point, Judge Judy, uh, I actually think she may still be, was the highest paid television personality in the world. More, she made more money from her TV show than Oprah. 25 years, 6,280 episodes. And by the way, if you're going to miss Judge Judy, she's got another show that's coming out that's in production now called uh, Judy Justice. <laughs> I guess you can make more money on it. It's going to be streaming. But anyway, I'm not plugging Judge Judy. But when Judge Judy ended its run in July, it was still pulling ratings of 8 million people a day. Because that's the population of Virginia. Every day, the state of Virginia, in its entirety, <laughs> was watching Judge Judy. And what is Judge Judy? A little quirk, right? They're bringing people out. They're squabbles with a family member or a neighbor or whatever it may be. And what happens? We decide who's going to get our sympathy, who's going to get our disdain. It's a big quirk. Now, if it's true that what we consume tells us a lot about what we value, what does daytime TV say about us? I think it says this, that we live in courtrooms that pass verdicts, and we kind of like it. We kind of like it. We live as judges, and we, even in our lives, live as defendants. Of course, on the grand scale of things, TV, daytime television, is a pretty recent phenomenon, but this impulse, this twisted courtroom of society is something that's old is the moments after Adam and Eve's first sin. And it isn't something that we see just on television. These broken courtrooms are at, are at play in our communities. They're at play in our homes. Broken courtroom of our own hearts. And here's the thing. I think that this is an end. I think as human beings, we were created to look outside of ourselves for our identity. We were created by God, as what Genesis says, in His image and likeness. We were made to be outward facing, to reflect who He is. That's what we were created for. But the reality of sin 
is that this relationship with God has been broken. And I think we run wherever we can to try to find validation. We run to try to find verdicts to live under. Because we were made to live under. The verdict is gone. But we look for other things to fill that void. But the problem is, as we look around, we live in busted courtrooms. Courtrooms that can't pass verdicts that are worth living under. And this morning, so I, that I want to talk about these courtrooms. What are the courtrooms of this world, looking at this passage from 1 Corinthians that the Apostle Paul is talking about, what are the verdicts we live under? And in the midst of that, I want to hear an invitation from Jesus to leave the broken courtrooms of our world behind and live under the verdict of Jesus. So what verdict do we live under? The answer to that question will reverberate out to the rest of our lives. It's a huge impact. What voice is loudest? And so the first courtroom I want to look at, or the first verdict, is the verdict of other people. The courtroom of other people. This is living in the courtroom of other people's opinions about us. Apostle Paul talks about it here in, uh, in verse 3. He says, human courts. And he's speaking about, I care very little. I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. And what are these verdicts? Now, for the Apostle Paul, it was the verdict of people who he had ministered to. He had planted the church there in the city of Corinth. And he had been there a year and a half. And he moved on after a year and a half to another city. And he got word that chaos had happened in Corinth. And they had all kinds of questions they needed answers to. And what had happened is there had developed in the, when Paul left, all these teachers had said, well, I'm the leader. I'm the leader. And they had developed followings in the church there. And some of those people were saying, man, don't listen to me. Don't listen to Paul. He left. Don't listen to him. Listen to me. He's not trustworthy. And so that's what Paul's talking about. I care very little if I'm judged by you. But we live under what verdicts? We're not, most of us aren't, well, none of us are apostles. We're not in the city of Corinth. But what verdicts do we live under? Some of us are going to live under verdicts passed on us when we were kids. This is a big one. We live under verdicts that were passed on us when we were kids. Some of the most powerful verdicts are ones that we carry with us from our childhood. This could be the verdicts of parents or mentors or coaches. Patterns and ways of life get imprinted on us from parents or grandparents or guardians. Words that are said to us that we can't forgive. Names that we've been called. You may have been called dumb or clumsy or fat or ugly. It could be experiences that, you, that the person <laughs> maybe didn't even realize they were passing a verdict on you that you carry around with you. Piece of vulnerability here. I love basketball, but I'm not very good at it. I'm okay. But when I was a kid, I was very short. When I started high school, I was four foot eleven, and I loved basketball. But being four foot eleven in ninth grade means that every time I went to take a shot, they kept flying into the stands. And when I was a kid in middle school and in high school, I tried out for the basketball teams, and I loved basketball, and I thought I was okay. I didn't make it. I didn't make it. I'm 37, and I still think about that. I know. I know it sounds silly, 
And the coach wasn't thinking, I hate Tim and him, and I'm going to teach that kid a lesson. They were just trying to make a you know, roster out of the kids that tried out. But it's a verdict that I carry around with. And that's a small one. There's so many bigger ones. I still have a sense of shame about that, that I wasn't good enough, that I was too short or I was too slow. So it could be verdicts of parents or mentors or coaches. It could be a verdict in a much more serious way, experiences of abuse. You're abused in whatever way. You carry it with you. You think, I've been abused. I must have had it coming. And that becomes a verdict that you live under. Or the verdict of other people. It could be verdicts of friends or kids your age when you were a kid. Maybe you remember times you were laughed at, or times you embarrassed yourself. Maybe there's things that happen to you that people laughed at that they haven't thought about it a single time since, but you think about it on the radio. These are verdicts that we live under. Or it could be verdicts in the here and now of people you want to admire you. You're an adult. It could be a verdict of, a, of an employer. You want your employer to think really well of you, or a professor, or some peer that you respect. And you find yourself laughing a little bit too loud at their jokes that aren't that funny, but you want to ingratiate yourself, you know, you want, to, you want to be in there. But the reality is you set them up above yourself, and you live under the burden on whether you're in their crowd or not. This could be even verdicts that you anticipate that haven't even been passed on you. Maybe you have friends, and you think, well, if they really knew me, they really knew who I was, they wouldn't know me. All of these are verdicts we lie trying to. And here's the other thing. These can even be positive verdicts that are harsh twists. I have a friend who told me, this is the most, one of the happiest, most joyful, like joy-creating guys in his personality that I've ever known. He told me he was the youngest in his family, and his mom told him one time that he was the happy one. He was the happy kid in his family, and his mom treated him like the favorite. And she always told him, and she meant this as a compliment, I think, that he was the one who made the family happy. He's the one who set the tone for the family's happiness. And I remember talking to him at 30 years old, and he said, My mom loves me. And I think that's why she said it. We have a great relationship. But I carry that like a burden. I don't feel like I can be sad. I don't feel like I can have trouble or needs because I'm in charge of my entire family's happiness. He was walking under a verdict and it passed on him that nobody was even on the way. So that's what I'm talking about. The verdicts of other people passed on us that we carry around. And here's the thing, though. Here's why this is such a big problem. We wilt under the verdicts of other people. We waste away. And there's tons of reasons why. We wilt under the verdicts of other people because those verdicts are fickle. You might be in the positive today. Tomorrow it might change. They can change so easily. But these verdicts eat away at us, and they can warp our way of thinking. And so what do we do with the answer to that? In 
the face of that. What can we so often do? We can turn inward. We can close ourselves off, which leads us to our second court layer, living under the verdict of our own hearts. Living under the verdict of our own hearts. Now, this may seem a bit better than living under the verdicts of other people. It's like saying to the world, you can't condemn me. You can't judge me. I judge myself. And that may even seem like a solution. You, you're not looking for validation, so look inward. Listen to your heart. You can hear this reverberation. You can, I don't know, you can go to Hobby Lobby and see it printed on a pillow. Listen to your heart. All of that. And the idea is if you don't open yourself up to others, you can't be heard, right? Close your ears to anybody's voice other than your own. Well, to quote Tom Petty, who I love, that keeps out the danger that holds in the pain. Because here's the problem. None of us see ourselves 100% clearly. We may think it's okay to live under the verdict of our own courtroom, whereas Paul talks about his conscience. He said his conscience is clear. But none of us see ourselves 100% clearly. We have blind spots. We have shortcomings. We have simple tendencies that have been, not been rooted out or even seen by ourselves. And so on the one hand, we actually might judge ourselves too harshly. How many of us have things that happened ages ago that we still think about? Why did you do that? And it still reverberates. And the way that that has festered in your heart is outside, it, it far outsizes what actually happens. <laughs> or on the other hand, we might, we might judge ourselves too leniently. I think this is actually more common than not. We stop short of seeing how deeply we've sinned against God and other people. We give ourselves a pass. We might even have a clear conscience or a peace in our heart of God. But as Paul says here in verse 4, having a clear conscience doesn't make him innocent. What does Paul say here? He's not a judge over himself. He said his conscience is clear, but that doesn't make him innocent. What he's saying here is he is not equipped or qualified to judge himself. He can't simply look inwardly and hope to find what he needs. He has to look outside of himself. So we have the verdicts of, the, uh, of other people. The courtroom of other people's opinions that we saw from them. We have the courtroom of our own heart. The verdicts we pass on ourselves that we saw from them. But they can't give us what we need either. We have to look outside of ourselves, but not to human courts, not to the verdicts of other people, but to the verdict of God. As he says in verse 4, it is the Lord who judges me. And that brings us to our last section, we under the verdict of Jesus Christ. Now that might sound like a terrifying thing. It is the Lord who judges me. That might sound scary. The holy God, our hearts laid bare to him, who knows everything, everything we thought, said, or done, that he's our judge? I'll go back and judge myself, right? But here's the thing. To be judged by the Lord for Paul and for us, to be judged by the Lord means to live under the verdict of Jesus. And that is not terrifying. It's profoundly good news. It's the good news that into the courtrooms of other people's opinions, into the courtrooms of our own hearts, God has broken in by His grace and He has come to us in Christ Jesus. And in Jesus made a way to free us from the verdicts that weigh us down, to free us from the verdicts that mislead us. He invites us to live under the verdict as they pass on Jesus. 
Now, what do I mean? The verdict that's been passed on Jesus. Let me explain. Jesus lived in our world. In the scandal of Christianity, the eternal Son of God became a human being. He took to himself the human nature. And that person, in that person, God and man are reconciled, joined together in Jesus. And Jesus walked in our world and though he faced the exact same temptations that we do, as Hebrews talks about, all the same temptations that we do, he didn't give in. He did something that no other human being has ever done. He did not give in. He walked through our world without sin. That, mean, that doesn't mean he wasn't impacted by sin. He never bowed the knee of his heart to sin. He fulfilled the will of God. And righteousness. Yet what happened to him? What happened to Jesus? A truly righteous man was too much of a threat in this world. And so Jesus was put to death by the Roman government and perhaps with the religious leaders of his day with a cheering crowd cheering them on that represented the highest to the lowest of society. And think about this. Jesus was crucified in an incredible act of injustice. With a false verdict literally passed on him. Jesus was brought into the broken human courtrooms in this world and condemned to die. And he was left dead in a grave. Yet, yet, God chose that injustice, that cross, the crucifixion of Jesus, as the place. For his judgment against the sin of our world will be poured out. And so that place of human injustice became the place of divine justice against sin. His just wrath against the sin of our world is poured out on the cross of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing, friends. Jesus walked into this not just as a victim of injustice, which he surely was a victim of injustice. He walked into this with eyes wide open as a substitute. And he drank the bitter cup of God's wrath against sin to the dregs. Here's the good news. Emptying it. The wrath of God against our sin is gone. Because it's been poured out on Jesus. So that those of us who come to him, there remains no more justice to be poured out against our sin. No more justice to happen against our sin. It's exhausted by Jesus standing in our place. And here's what I mean by living under the burden of Jesus. The injustice, the unjust verdict passed upon him by the human authorities. God using that place as where he would judge our sin. And so almost final judgment, telescoping into the crucifixion in a sense. And we standing in Jesus. God's verdict on Jesus was him raising him from the dead. Having satisfied the justice of God, Jesus was risen from the dead. His resurrection was the verdict of God that contradict, contradicted the, the, the false verdict of this world. So Jesus walked into the broken courtrooms of our world and he faced the broken verdicts of this world that he might defeat those broken verdicts for us. Jesus was condemned to die by political and religious leaders, but he was vindicated before God in resurrection, proven to be the righteous one. 
In his resurrection, he defeated the power of death and sin. He overcame them by his sacrificial love for us. And this is what it means for us to live under this verdict. Scripture says that when we come to Jesus by faith, we are included in Christ. That's terminology throughout the New Testament. In Christ. We are united to Jesus. So his victory is our victory. The verdict passed on him in his resurrection becomes our verdict by faith. We are justified in God's sight, not because of our deeds. We are justified in God's sight by faith in Jesus. We are righteous because the righteousness of Jesus, his lived righteousness in this life, is credited to us, is gifted to us by faith. You may have heard it described as when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. We are counted in Jesus, never to be separated from Jesus. So not only has our sin been taken care of so that God could forgive us, it's not just wiping a clean slate. We are now, to use economic terminology, positively righteous. It, we weren't just brought back to a zero balance from all of our overdraft fees. We are now Righteous in God's sight because the righteousness of Jesus credited to us and received all faith. In place of our bad record before God, we are given the gift of a new record. Not only forgiven of sin, not just a slate white clean and a new chance for us to mess up again. I don't need just a second chance. I'm going to blow the second chance. I don't need a 15th chance. I'm going to mess up in the 15th chance. Right? We are given the record of Jesus. That is counted for us. It is credited to us. We are righteous in the sight of God. Now, if you want to feel like you know the fancy theological term, this is what's called justification by faith. Justified in God's sight. Not because of anything we've done, but because of the righteousness of Jesus credited to us. And in the here and now, we are invited to live in this reality. Not live under the false verdicts of this world or the false verdicts that we may even feel to be true verdicts. Not condemned by our sin, even when that condemnation might be justified. We are invited to live under the verdict of Jesus. So now, in the here and now, your sin, no matter how great, your sins, no matter how many you've done, no matter how numerous they are, they're removed from you. The shame and guilt you feel in your heart about the things you've done wrong, or even the things that have been done against you, are gutted of their power. Dealt with and overcome by Jesus. And so maybe you've lived under the verdict of a bad parent, a bad father, or a mother who passed a verdict on you that you were dumb or slow or ugly or whatever. Maybe you have those verdicts echoed throughout your life. Well, now what do you have? Now you have a father that delights over you. To revisit the words of Zephaniah 3 that we read in our assurance of pardon. The Lord, your God, is with you. The mighty warrior who saves, he will take great delight in you. This is the verdict of God the Father on you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. The verdicts that you live under, no matter how deeply they run or how loud they resound in your ear, are now overcome by a greater verdict that is yours. You are righteous and you are loved. So, what does it mean?
to reflect on this truth, and to make it more than something we individually experience and feel as profane. Because it certainly is that. This is something I think about every single day. <laughs> because this is the glorious truth of the gospel. And we never move on from this, which we'll talk about next week when we talk about the, the gospel's goodness for the family. But this is meant to be more than just a thing we recognize as true for ourselves. After all, we're preaching about our mission as a church. What does it mean for us to proclaim and then live out the reality of this promise of a new record? Good news for the lost. How do we proclaim and live out this truth, the promise of a new record before God? I think it means that we are radically welcoming hospital, that we become radically welcoming and hospitable. And to explain what I mean, I want to reflect it in a negative story. From my family's history. It's the late 70s, it's done in North Carolina, and my dad, who didn't grow up in church at all, really didn't have any kind of connection to that at all. He's up partying late one night with his brother on Saturday. And they decide that the next day, for whatever, in the haze of that Saturday morning, they decide they're going to go to church the next day. I don't know why. I don't know what they were looking for. They decide they're going to go to church. And so they hit the church. I don't actually know which one it was. And they go. Now, they look like the night before. They don't have Sunday best because they haven't done this before. And I'm sure they probably smell like the night before. And they walk in and they sit down and they're waiting for the service to start. And a kindly man walks up and introduces himself. Says he's a leader there at the church. And then he tells my dad, you are not welcome here. You need to leave. You're not welcome here. My dad got up. And he walked out of that door. And for the rest of his life, he did not go back into the Christian worship service. He He had been rejected by Southern Church culture, by people who said they acted in the name of Jesus, and he thought that had meant he was rejected by Jesus. And my dad came to faith before he passed away, a few months before he died. But he never worshipped with a church community. I shudder to think about what that sentence that that man said to my dad meant for the rest of his life, meant for my family's life. I shudder to think about the gifts that the church my dad would have wound up in would have meant to them. You're not welcome here. You need to leave. What had happened there, in part, was it just a social discrimination against a guy with long hair that looked like a party? I think what was missing in the heart of the man walking to my dad that day was a recognition that the reality of the gospel is meant to impact not just our own hearts and how we feel about God, but how we interact with everybody else. And so as we think about what it means to be a church who inhabits and embodies the gospel is a new record. The good news for the lost. Think about it this way. We need to be cognizant and purposeful at every moment as a church to keep this reality in the center of our hearts. 
Because there's always a danger that other things are going to sneak in and become the real center. Now, we're never going to be in that church would have never said, we don't love the gospel. And they probably would have even, they probably even had on their sign, all are welcome. Every church has all are welcome on the sign. There's always a danger that something else will pull up the center and become the thing that we judge others and judge ourselves by. Will become the verdict that maybe we don't live under, but we, we make other people live under. And that's the big danger here. That we'll fill the invitation to ourselves to live under the verdict of Jesus, but we're going to force other people to live under other verdicts that we pass on them or whatever. And so for us, Thinking forward, what this means for us and the rest of our lives individually and together, it means this. We become people who do not measure on the standards and worth of this world. Part of what the cross of Jesus is, is a condemnation on the way this world measures what matters. The religious and political authorities put Jesus to death because they were essentially saying, what you are, what you embody, Jesus, is worth throwing away. And when God judges this world at the cross and that act of injustice, God says, no, those measures of worth cannot stand. And so what we do as a church, as people who are embodying the gospel of Jesus, proclaiming and living out the reality, we become people that value based on the grace of Jesus. Period. We don't measure on the standard of this world. And because God has opened his heart to us in love, we open our hearts and we open our doors, literally and figuratively, to other people. To other people. If they, if they stink, if we don't like the way they look, if they have completely different, uh, different likes than us, even people we don't like, we become radically welcoming and hospitable. And we drive a stake here to not move on from it. This becomes the bedrock. Because if we move on from this, we might as well be Kiwanis or Lions Club or whatever social club we can be. And some good things might happen to them. There might be friendships that build. But if we move on from this, we've lost the mission of God. And that's why he's called us together as a new baby church in the middle of a pandemic. To be a people that drive a stake here and never move on. The grace of Jesus and nothing else. To close this, I mean, there's a pastor named Jack Miller, a longtime pastor outside of Philadelphia. And he would say when he started sermons, Hi, I'm Jack and I'm a sinner. <laughs> and I actually think he got it from 12 step program. Uh, from, uh, from um, Alcoholics Anonymous. The introduction. And that's the baseline introduction. It wasn't, Jack, I'm the pastor, and I have, this is my uh, master's degree and my PhD in theology. Here's all the books I wrote. Here's all the faithful things I've done. No. I'm Jack. I'm a sinner. We are not. We never move on from being beggars who have found bread that are telling other beggars where to find bread. We never move on from that. That's who we are. There's no shame in that. As I said earlier, we were created to live under the verdict that God passes on us. 
There's no shame in that. So cheer up, friends. Cheer up, because you are a far worse sinner than you can ever, ever imagine. This is another thing Jack Miller used to say. Cheer up. You are a worse sinner than you can ever imagine. But in Jesus, you are far more loved than you can ever dream. You are worse than you can ever imagine. You are far more loved than you can ever dream. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this incredible truth. We thank you that we can stop and reflect on it, that we can rejoice in it. Cause it to be the source of our rejoicing. Cause it to be the place we come back to time and time again. And cause us, Lord, to be people that embody this. People that look at this truth not just as a reason for us to individually be happy that we've been made right with God, that we're justified in your sight, but surely it is that which calls our hearts to sing you, rejoicing over us and singing. But make this the source of our interactions with other people. Make us radically welcoming. Make us radically hostile. Embed this in who we are. And pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Mm -hmm.